welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. Recent reports of a major hacking operation, allegedly by Russia, into an array of U.S. government networks has excited renewed debate about the national security threats we face in the cyber domain and what to do about it. Here to talk with me about this are two guests, my colleague Brandon Valeriano, senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, and a senior advisor with the Cyberspace Solarium Commission and Erica Borgard, Senior Fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council, and she also serves as Senior Director on the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission. So first, Brandon, just start out by laying out precisely what happened. How was this breach carried out? By whom? What's the kind of damage assessment? Well, the breach was carried out through a vulnerability in the SolarWinds Orion IT management software. And what apparently happened is that someone got into the supply chain and inserted a malicious update into the system back in, what was it, March, February, Erica? Um, And uh, it it was very likely done by Russia. Um, We haven't seen very much clear attribution in terms of technical attribution from the U.S. government because that's just not what the U.S. government does. Because if you do display your ability to have eyes on the opposition, that will close off uh, your ability to watch them in the future. So the deeper issue is that this IT management software was very much persuasive throughout the entire U.S. system and the international system. Um, the majority of the Fortune 500 companies uh, use the software, um, just about all the U.S. government does, and pretty much all the U.S. government has been impacted, except potentially the DOD and the, inter- uh, and the intelligence community. But then again, if the intelligence community was hit, they probably wouldn't admit it anyways. So that's the basics of the attack. Um, So far, we know that they probably had eyes on what all these networks were doing, Um, but it doesn't seem like they have been able to actually impact and change things within networks just yet. So we're not sure if they inserted any backdoors or any sorts of uh, future points of access. But um, right now, it does seem very comprehensive and a deeply penetrating operation. But overall, though, it's just espionage. Um, not to belittle espionage, but the discourse has very much moved to this idea that this is war, that this is an act of war. And in reality, this is what countries have always been doing and will continue to do until they're prevented from doing so through defensive operations. Erica, you've written that it's important to understand that cyber attack is probably the wrong word to use here and that espionage is probably more appropriate, as Brandon says. Can you explain why that distinction is so important? Sure. So I think that distinction is important on two levels. The first sort of more basic level is, you know, a technical level, the aims of the threat actor. And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, And then the second level, which I think is sort of more important, is the sort of policy and strategic level. So getting back to the first level, um, The difference between espionage and attack in cyberspace really has to do with what a threat actor is aiming to do when they gain access to a network. So for espionage, it's about sort of gaining access to information that someone is not supposed to have access to, whether that is to learn about Uh, from the U.S. perspective, how the U.S. government conducts sort of daily processes of government, 
who the key personnel are, what sort of policy objectives um, are sort of around the corner that would enable an adversary or a competitor, even an ally, to sort of anticipate what might be around the corner um, and sort of for their own strategic and political purposes. A cyber attack, on the other hand, seeks to do something to that network or the data um, that resides in it or through it. And that could be a disruptive effect to disrupt the functioning of a network temporarily. It could be a disruptive effect. Um, it could involve the manipulation or changing of data. And so, you know, that's kind of typically how we distinguish between cyber espionage and cyber attack. From a policy perspective, this distinction matters because espionage, as Brandon mentioned, is something that is a routine part of statecraft. All states spy on one another. We don't like that that happens to us, but that doesn't mean that we are going to respond with the same sort of policy levers that we would when it comes to uh, cyber attacks. And so, you know, there's so, so there's a sort of definitional distinction from a technical perspective and then a strategic distinction and the implications for how the U.S. government should respond going forward. Right. So major attacks that, uh, you know, do something to disrupt or damage U.S. systems and that kind of thing could possibly prompt some kind of military response from the United States in, in certain situations. And we expect that not to happen in cases of, of espionage breaches like this, right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's generally correct. Although responses don't necessarily have to be within the military domain, there could be diplomatic responses, law enforcement responses, um, economic responses, like the imposition of sanctions and things like that. So there's really sort of a gamut of what could be done, and the response could take place in cyberspace or it could take place outside of cyberspace. But okay. it's really a function of proportionality and and how you would respond. So with respect to proportionality, the first step there, I think, is kind of trying to get to the bottom of how severe this breach was. A lot of folks, uh, commentators referred to it as another cyber Pearl Harbor. Members of both parties referred to it as an invasion. Um, what is the severity of this breach in terms of U.S. national security? Brandon? I, I don't think we're sure yet. Um, it was in fact, very comprehensive, but in a very comprehensive breach doesn't mean anything. And this goes back to the OPM hack of what, 2015 by China. Office of Personnel and Management, uh, China hacked into the systems and- Yeah, I'm sorry, with the the cyber people love their lingo and I've been kind of converted to it. Um, the, the OPM hack of 2015 also included a hack on Marriott, a hack on, what was it, Delta, um, it was a fairly comprehensive attack in trying to gather data about the U.S. public. How did China use that? Well, that's the problem, right? We don't know how they use that. We don't know if they even did use that. And John Lindsay said, you know, a few years ago, um, you know, what ability does a state really have to analyze this terabytes of data? I think we overestimate the ability of a state to actually use data. And working with the U.S. government, I, I know that we have not done very well in our ability to design metrics and empirics and machine learning and things like that. And I'm not so confident that other countries have the same abilities um, or even are more advanced than we are. So if there is an impact, it's not exactly clear we will even know what the impact is. And that's the hallmark of an espionage campaign. They take without being caught. But the problem is in cyberspace, you often are caught because what you're doing is very, very public at some point. 
And this vulnerability was discovered through FireEye, a cyber threat intelligence firm, learning that they lost their tools and figuring out they lost their tools through the vulnerability put through by the SolarWinds software, uh, the IT management software. Erica, this is less of a technical question and more of a political one, but how do you explain um, the tendency of policymakers to so drastically overstate and often actually mischaracterize the nature of these these cyber uh, breaches or attacks? Yeah, so I mean, it certainly is a frustration. For me, I noticed for Brandon too that we use analogies that don't actually describe what's going on, like cyber Pearl Harbor or cyber 9-11, um, or I, I don't know, I'm sure there are a number of others that I'm not thinking of right now. Um, and, and then to also use language that um, sort of distorts or doesn't accurately capture what's going on. Um, I, I think that this is natural, right? You're talking about an area that seems sort of technical and obscure and difficult to understand. And so there's, you know, it can be natural to sort of grasp onto things that are more tangible and easier to understand and reason by analogy, even if those analogies are imperfect. Um, So that's sort of the more favorable (laughs) interpretation. A less favorable one is that this is a way of, you know, in a democracy getting support for, you know, whatever it is that a policymaker or senior leader could be aiming to do. Um, and how do you get the attention of the domestic public? It could be by sort of exaggerating or hyping up what's going on. And I guess what frustrates me about this is that I do think this is significant. And I don't think that we need to call it an attack to make it significant, right? Like, I think if you communicate to the American people, what's going on and what's at stake. I sort of have faith in the American public that can be sort of understood and reasoned with appropriately without having to call this a cyber attack. And I get concerned that if we call everything a cyber attack, then when we perhaps may actually experience a cyber attack, then it loses sort of the salience and the, and, and the importance of what may be going on in that future scenario, and you may not have the same kind of flexibility um, to sort of respond in an appropriate way. And so to me, it's important to call things as they are and to communicate with the American public, with our allies and partners, with the adversary about sort of what this is and why it matters. And so that's not to say that it doesn't matter, because I do think that it could be significant. Um, And I agree with Brandon that it, it can be hard to digest sort of enormous volumes of information. My guess, though, is that the threat actor would be searching or or sort of targeting a particular set of information that may be far more narrow and sort of useful um, for their own strategic aims. But again, we don't sort of know enough yet to to know one way or the other. And an example of that would be um, the tools that they took from FireEye. And there's a possibility that the threat actor took various tools from our government system. But the reality is, as Erica says, this is a very clear issue in terms of espionage. It's not exactly an attack. 
and the using the language of an attack and using the language of Pearl Harbor suggests that we need to go on the offense to fix the problem. When in reality, I see this as a huge defensive failure and a failure of our network monitoring programs and software and that we don't have what Einstein two. Uh, Einstein 1 is a network monitoring program, very much kind of like a simple way to describe it would be like Windows Defender. Um, but we haven't gone to the next version. And then we have a version after that plan that needs to be a little bit more proactive in finding threats that we don't know about, because right now we only search for threats that we currently know about and understand. So the dynamics of the exploit are very critical here. And the language we use to talk about this very much plays into the responses that we suggest for this issue. Can I just also add one other thing? I, I think that I, I agree with Brandon completely about the importance of, of language. Just to add to that, you know, the breach is ongoing. We don't know what the ultimate aims are of the threat actor. Um, you know, people have been talking about whether, you know, there could be, you know, someone has gained access to these networks. Perhaps there could be a follow-on sort of disruptive or destructive cyber attack. Uh, granted, that hasn't happened yet, and it can be frustrating to speculate about a range of possible future scenarios. However, you know, if there is credible intelligence suggesting that maybe this is sort of step one of a multi-phase campaign, we would want to call step one what it actually is to preserve flexibility to deter a future potential cyber attack, right? So you you need to have, you limit your options unnecessarily if everything becomes a cyber attack. And we want to be able to retain those sort of tools of deterrence to influence future behavior if we anticipate that an attack may be forthcoming. And we, and we limit that if we call what's going on at this moment an attack. So you mentioned deterrence tools. Um... I wonder if you guys can give a sense for people about how this domain should be characterized overall. Is it one where deterrence really works? Is it one where it's sort of offensively inclined? Uh, how should lay people understand the kind of threats and uh, possibilities for actually deterring these things uh, uh, in the cyber domain? So I'm immediately regretting using the term deterrence. <laughs> but that said, I think that apply, making a blanket statement about how deterrence works or doesn't in cyberspace isn't useful. Um, and we wouldn't do that in any other domain, right? The question is, under what conditions has deterrence worked? Under what conditions has it been problematic? And why? And who are we deterring? And what are we deterring them from? Right. Um, and we could probably spend the rest of our time today talking about all those questions. In a broad sense, I think we need to think about deterrence in terms of thresholds. Right. So at the sort of highest threshold of strategic cyber attack, deterrence seems to largely have held. Right. We haven't seen a cyber Pearl Harbor, despite the fact that everyone likes to talk about it. We haven't seen a cyber 9-11. And we could hypothesize that that is because the U.S. has, you know, an advantage across, you know, other domains of warfare such that we have been able to deter attacks that would rise to that level. Um, below that threshold, it's been a bit more challenging and we've had more difficulty preventing those sort of 
malign, corrosive campaigns that don't rise to a level of strategic cyber attack, but still have important consequences. And that's where the deterrence challenge exists. That's where the Solarium Commission focused a lot of its effort on. Um, And then you have espionage, which, you know, from my perspective, and others may disagree with me, um, I don't think we try to deter espionage. I don't think deterrence is the right framework for espionage. Deterrence is a necessary practice in international politics, and we try to make it less likely to happen to us and sort of mitigate and reduce the consequences when we have intelligence failures. But we're not trying to sort of deter Russia from spying on us because that's just not, that's not within the realm of the feasible. And we would like to spy on other people. So um, I, I just don't think that's the right framework. But Brandon, I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so much there. And I, I totally agree with Erica on the thresholds issue, which our friend Jackie Schneider has been working on for some quite some time. And she has empirical data that suggests that there are basically fire breaks or divisions in how people think about the thresholds of cyber activity. But the problem on our end, from a deterrence perspective. And deterrence has become a buzzword. The terminology has really long surpassed its meaning from the nuclear era. But we still use that term because people like to tether themselves to terms and they believe it has a function, a meaning or whatever. It doesn't exactly matter in that sense. The key thing though is to think about a foundation of deterrence going back to the nuclear era is on defenses and defensive hardening. And even going back to the age of sail and the British and the idea of defensive being or John Corbett and defensive depth, all this terminology is still the same, that you need to harden the targets from attack in the first place because the foundation of the idea of deterrence is to prevent an action by the fear of retaliation. And we're just not doing that enough right now. We need to focus more on the defenses. And we also need to have some clarity about how we're going to use offensive tools. Because one thing, as you know, Erica mentioned, the Solarium Commission, we were very much focused on the idea of defending forward, but the idea that we need to be very clear and signal the imposition of costs. And the way persistent engagement and defend forward were articulated early on, they believe that the imposition of costs which is a prime factor in terms of deterrence, is an outgrowth of the process, not the prime ideal or the end of the process. And that's just wrong. Imposing costs is a prime function of deterring an offensive set of action through consequences. The last thing is the language of domains. I mean, this is all gets very British very, very quickly. And I say that because I, I lived there for a number of years. But the terminology of domains is probably not correct, right? Um, at some point, cyber could be a domain. We probably want to call it an information domain uh, because we're talking about a non-physical layer of interaction. But I'm not just sure we're there yet. A lot of the things that we talk about in cyber are really cross-domain, not necessarily in-domain because there's a physical tethering to the reality that we're talking about. But uh, Jordan Branch has a great article in International Organizations that basically argues that the terminology of domains was leveraged by the U.S. military to apply military power to the problem. And that's a deeper debate in the community. Because the real issue is, in some ways, who is responsible for these problems? Who's going to solve these problems? And a lot of people, 
would argue that it's the private sector that has the most responsibility and the most um, ability to deal with these issues. And this attack came from the private sector. It came from Solar Winds, a private company. And that's something we have to remember that the government is not always the solution here. Uh, Erica may disagree, but um, you know, I, as a Cato senior fellow, I have to say that. <laughs> um, you've made a couple of allusions to what we ought to be doing and how we ought to be uh, conducting ourselves in this domain. Forgive the forgive the phrase. Um, but before we get to that, does this incident tell us anything about? the U.S. approach to cyber strategy right now? Um, and what is the U.S. approach to cyber strategy right now? Erica. Well, I think that I've seen a lot of people use this as an example of a failure of defend forward, which I find fascinating. And I think it was Josh Rovner, and Brandon, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I saw Josh Rovner mention on Twitter how it's really fascinating that we would describe what's clearly an intelligence failure as a failure of a combatant command, right? Um, and I think that that's because, you know, there's been so much publicity about sort of this new strategic concept that was introduced um, in 2018 in the command vision by U.S. Cyber Command, and then as well in the Department of Defense Cyber Strategy, and there's just been a lot of talk about this and also a lot of confusion about what the strategy is. And that, I think, comes from sort of discoordinated rollout of this concept, um, a failure of political leaders to explain and communicate what it is, a lack of consistency in talking about it and describing it. And so what you're left with is a lot of focus on these concepts that no one really quite understands. And therefore, um, that's sort of where sort of the immediate attention gets turned to when, from my perspective, this is a huge intelligence failure. Although I'm not sure the problem is that, and this gets at a piece I, I did yesterday for War on the Rocks on the notion of resilience. And I don't mean to do like a shameless self-promote, um, but I just, I think it really fits in here, right? Like, I think a lot of these things are just inevitable and I don't mean to be fatalistic about it, but, you know, so much of our society and the functions of our government and our economy rests on this digital infrastructure that's insecure. And we have to expect that threat actors are going to try to exploit that in all kinds of ways and ways are, that are difficult to anticipate. Um, and so we should sort of bake that into our understanding and our strategy for dealing with them. And, and this gets back to what Brandon was saying a few minutes ago. I think that we need to sort of improve our defenses and incorporate the idea of resilience into it so that we can sort of anticipate and withstand and better recover from and learn from these events because they're going to happen and they're going to keep happening. Um, and so I think that, you know, I think that that's sort of the lesson that we need to take away from this, not necessarily um, that this is sort of the failure of a particular combatant command. Um, and that that's not, that, that's not to say that it isn't unreasonable that everyone is focusing on that just because there's been so much focus on that. But I just, I don't think it's the right frame. 
Yeah, and what I would add to that is that I think the problem is, is that we've been trying to use the terminology of defend forward or persistent engagement for just about everything in cyberspace. And in doing so, it makes it seem like there's a simple tool to fix all problems. When that, that's not the case here. I don't think the response to this is more defend forward. In fact, I think the response to this is more defenses and more network monitoring. I think that's a simple explanation for what happened here. And I don't think going on the offense is really going to solve the problem. And I don't think this is a great indication of the utility of the offense. But a lot of people take a lot of lessons from these dramatic cases. And uh, I've explained this before, and I've called this like megafauna research in cybersecurity. And what that basically means is like, you know, when you're a biologist, do you just study the elephants and the lions? Or do you look at the totality of the, of the ecological system? Do you look at the insects? Do you look at everything else on how this works? And do you actually focus your efforts at the systemic analysis of the problem? And too often, we kind of are distracted by the big, shiny objects in cybersecurity. And Erica and I well know that every time there's a big incident like this, our lives are going to be taken over by two or three months responding to this incident. And then there's going to be a break, and then there's going to be another incident. And this is how this quote-unquote domain works. And I think that's a big problem, and that's a failure on our end as researchers and as policymakers. Oh, no. I was, yeah, I was just going to respond to to one comment that Brandon made, um, and I know we disagree on this, Um because uh, Jackie and I wrote about this in a, a couple of our pieces on on solar winds, I I don't think that um, I don't think that it's an either or between sort of defend forward and improving our defense and resilience. And so I also don't think that, and this gets at problems with how the defend forward strategy has been communicated. Um, I don't think it means going on the offensive. Right? There's a big part of defend forward that involves simply maneuvering outside of cyberspace that the U.S. controls to learn more about how adversary organizations are evolving, to share that information with domestic stakeholders. There is sort of the hunt forward mission where um, cyber protection teams at the invitation of allies and partners um, help threat hunt on their networks. And so I think the problem is that the way the strategy has been communicated is that it means sort of going on the offensive and taking the fight to the enemy and all of that. And I actually don't think that um, that's necessarily in most cases where that concept is most useful. And so I do think that we need to learn more about what the adversary's aims are. We need to understand what their collection requirements are. Um, we need to understand how they're evolving as organizations, how their TTPs are evolving and their capabilities and all of that. And um, I think that that goes hand in hand with improving our defenses and making um, our organizations and our systems more resilient. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, defend forward is the be all and end all and that it's the only approach. It's certainly not. And it shouldn't be sort of the main effort. The main effort should be defense and resilience. But I don't think that it's a sort of one or the other. I think we need to integrate these better and improve how sort of the various stakeholders are working together for a shared objective. 
Yeah, and I totally agree with that perspective. And I think the problem is, are we framing this as an either or or a more? And when we frame this as a more issue, the idea is that we're not doing it enough. And this is what Harknet writes about, really, in uh, in his Lawfare piece about the need for persistent engagement around solar winds. And he argues that the U.S. needs to accelerate its shift away from a reactive posture. The problem is, is that Defend Forward is not new, that we've been saying we shifted away from a reactive posture for a long time. So the implication is that we need to do more of it. We need to be more proactive. But it's not exactly clear what we need to be doing more of. Do we need to be more in opposition networks? Do we need to be more considerate of our allies and work with our partners? What exactly does more entail? And more of what? And I think that's the real question. And I don't think we've ever got a clear answer on this. And you know, Eric and I both know that External and internal communications on these issues have been very inconsistent. And there is a huge problem of signaling our intentions to the opposition in cyberspace. And if we don't tell the opposition what we don't want them to do and what they cannot do and what they should not do, they will have no idea of what our thresholds and boundaries and red lines are. And that's the problem we're in right now. So with with respect to that, you know, I think an instinct that many Americans have and possibly many policymakers have in the aftermath of something like this is uh, to want to hit back in some way. So do we have a good sense of whether or not punishment strategies are effective? Punishment strategy. There's a long history here in the coercion literature about punishment. And punishment strategies are problematic for a number of reasons. Um, You know, there's a credibility issue uh, about whether we're actually going to truly inflict punishment for, um, for in, in this case, what is ostensibly seems to be an espionage campaign. Um, there are also issues with, you know, minding the say-do gap, I guess, right? So are, are we trying to signal that, like, espionage is not an acceptable form of statecraft in international politics. I don't think we want to be in that position. Um, There's an issue of proportionality too here. Um, And so, you know, I think that it's not new that punishment strategies for coercion are, uh, are, are problematic. There's an extensive academic literature here. I just, I, I just, I'm skeptical that this is the right way of thinking about responding, although I'm sympathetic to the idea that, oh, we must do something. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot we should do. We should fix the problem. Um, But I I don't think that sort of a punishment approach makes sense here. Yeah. Uh, And uh, I remember we had some sort of late night epiphany on punishment strategies and defend for it. I don't even remember exactly what it is. Um, But the basic idea, I think, was kind of clarified very eloquently in a um a senate hearing i remember i was in cardiff at the time i just got off on a plane and there was this real important senate hearing and lindsey graham was involved and i I quoted it all in the cyber strategy book i did with ben jensen and ryan manis but the basic idea was that someone explained to the senate that if we go on the offense and we seek to punish the opposition that we are throwing rocks in a glass house And the senator responded, I think it was Lindsey Graham, and he said, but I want to throw rocks. And that's really the problem we're having right now, is that we don't understand that even if punishment strategies worked in this context, which they don't, 
we are still very much vulnerable and throwing rocks in a glass house is just a really bad idea. But I think that's what we want to do in this arena domain quite often. And I would just add, that doesn't mean sort of not making it harder for for an adversary to, you know, to to do what it did in solar winds, right? Um, it, it's it's not sort of giving up and saying, oh, well, you know, I guess this is fine and we're not going to do anything about it. There are things to do about it. It's just that um, if you apply the inappropriate tools, then I think there could be negative second and third order effects that people aren't considering. Okay, so you, you've both helped segue to the final question here, which is uh, let's get kind of specific and dig into how best to make it more difficult for adversaries to carry out these kinds of operations, both espionage and uh, more severe attacks. Uh, what, what are some specifics that how we can actually deter or make this more difficult or less valuable or whatever? Well, I guess I could start. So I think that one really important thing that we could do that the Solarium Commission report discusses at length is really operationalizing collaboration with the private sector. And Brandon mentioned this earlier about the key role of the private sector. It's become a truism at this point to say that the private sector owns and operates 85% of this infrastructure or whatever the number is. The reality is that the federal government can't own this problem by itself. And our sort of surface area of attack spans so much that is outside of the control and authority, rightly so, of the federal government. And so we need to improve how we collaborate with the private sector. And that includes collaboration across a number of different um, areas. It's information and intelligence sharing, co-located analytics, um, having a national cyber director, uh, which is in the Solarium recommendation and in the now uh, past 2021 National Defense Authorization Act to be that coordinating function at the White House level um, to help sort of uh, drive and oversee this effort. And so I think that if you're going to pick one thing to do, I think that's sort of the first place to start. Yeah, I agree. I think the national cyber director is probably the most important thing because there needs to be someone who is responsible, who is a coordinator for these efforts. And we see in the U.S. government that everything is so dispersed and there are a lot of organizational seams, like my friend uh, Jenna Jordan said in an article with the Journal of Cybersecurity, that we have too many divisions and we don't have enough collaboration within the government. And if we have a national cyber director, we can handle that, but we can also have a point person for coordination outside of the government. And it can be moved away from the sort of the military NSA cyber command issue. But I think probably the most important thing is some form of active threat hunting and threat monitoring, which is something that was in the NDAA that was just passed, giving uh, CISA um, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. See, it, that's the problem. It's kind of redundant. It, it allows uh, CISA to have threat hunting uh, and subpoena powers in the U.S. government. Uh, we need to think more about, you know, when we're going to deploy Einstein to to monitor these systems. But probably we should just skip it, scrap it, and just go straight to Einstein three, and just really think of something in terms of getting a bang for our investment. And there was a lot of articles written when Solar Winds first happened about all the money we spend in this area that doesn't seem to be doing much. But the main thing, I think, in the end is going to be really focusing on standards and regulations at some point. 
And I think we've really failed at that. And that really has immense implications for how we manage the supply chain. But we've ceded a lot of that territory because of the general rejection of international institutions or regulatory bodies during the last four years. And we need to get back to that because we have fallen greatly behind there. But there is so much to do and everyone has a proposal. And the problem that people don't understand is that all these proposals, everything that everyone offers as a solution has already been said, has already been thought about. The problem is political will. Is there a political will to actually do these things? And maybe there will be during the Biden administration, but we don't know that just yet. So we'll see how this plays out. I would just add one thing. I, I think the things that Brandon and I have been talking about are sort of the um, sort of medium to long term. I, I do think we shouldn't neglect the immediate issue that when the Biden-Harris administration um, assumes office in, I don't know how many days now, because I've lost track of time during this pandemic, but, um, you know, there needs to be an incident response effort that happens at a scale that the federal government has not done before, because we don't know the extent to which federal networks are compromised. And we don't know whether the threat actor is has been uh, kicked out of those networks. And so we don't have confidence in sort of the integrity of the networks that support the basic functioning of the U.S. government, at least at the unclassified level. And so I think that that, that is an immediate priority that needs to be addressed with uh, addressed, and um, that will take an enormous amount of resources and time and personnel. And I think it will take up a lot of what um, a new administration will be grappling with. Brandon and Erica, thanks so much for coming on the show. 